All right. We want to get started. Anything we need to pray about? Any urgent prayer requests we, anybody have? That yeah, we can, Mike. Uh, almost, yeah. It's coming. I, if I could just give an update on my dad. Yeah. yeah. So he's doing great. Uh, he's home, came home Tuesday night. I spent a couple nights. My brother spent a couple nights. Um, he went for a drive today. I don't know how wise that was, but whatever. <laughs> he's old Marine. So yeah, yeah. Uh, but he's doing really well. We got him life alert. So if he falls again, he can not feel on the floor for 12 or 12 hours. So okay. thank you, everyone, for your prayers. Dad's yeah. Good. Glad to hear Glad to hear it. Yeah, so, uh, good. Glad to hear that. Yeah, I should uh, have a new grandbaby soon. I'm not sure how many hours that'll be, but it should be soon at some point. That'll be, I think, the last one. Yeah, unless it's, unless it's a miracle, child. Anyway, so. All right, let's go to prayer then. Father, thank you for tonight, once again, this opportunity to be together. Lord, we're so grateful that you, you have given us your word. You have uh, revealed yourself to us, not only in the things that you have made, your creation, that we see your attributes and how they are clearly seen through what you have made. We don't have to be confused about that. But even in that, you have given us your special revelation, the Word of God, that we might know you, and you sent your Son, who is God in the flesh, who is the, the personal revelation of you to us, and we, we know him and, and because you have told us of him, and so we're thankful for that. And Lord, you have also granted us, who know Jesus Christ, you've granted us the Spirit, God the Spirit, that we might uh, have your spirit indwelling us that we might understand your word and and know what you mean by what you say. And yet, even with the spirit leading us in all truth, Lord, we, we are to put in the, the exercise, the effort uh, to know exactly what it is you're saying and not be confused about that. So we thank you for all of that, that you have equipped us to know Jesus Christ with these, these gifts. So tonight, as we just look at the, this aspect of, of the science of interpretation, the study of hermeneutics, Lord, may we uh, grapple with these things and uh, you know learn even the smallest of nuggets that we might know more today than we knew yesterday, and, and it might help us in our study of your word and growth in our own Christian life. So we thank you for that. Thank you for our time tonight. May you be blessed and honored by it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, this is our fourth class. We have been spending time really on a on the large view of everything when it comes to uh, the first parts of hermeneutics, and that is in the study of uh, study of uh, just observation, observing the text, looking at the text, and all the things that go into that. And uh, so tonight we want to look at context. What is the literary Context, and you have that quote in your in your outline. The most important principle of biblical interpretation is that context determines meaning. Context determines meaning. Imagine for a moment that you came across a friend uh, as you were out and about, and they came up to you and just said this: "Just go for it." Just go for it. How would you respond to that? 
spoken language, friend of yours, statement made, would you, would you just say, okay, I will, and then walk away just shaking your head and thinking that your friend maybe has lost his mind? They came up to you and just said that, and you don't know what they mean? Or would you say, uh, okay, uh, uh, thinking that God has just maybe answered some kind of prayer that you threw up that morning in your own prayer time, and you were asking God for a sign to give you about some decision you were going to make or something you were thinking about making, and here's this friend who just comes up out of the blue and says, just go for it. And so you take that as a sign uh, that that difficult decision is something that you need to go in some this direction that you think is the best direction. How do you know what it means? What it means to just go for it, right? You need to ask some questions, right? If you're going to know what they mean by just go for it, you need to ask some questions of the person who said that, right? In other words, without a context... For them saying that, those words can mean almost anything. They can mean just about anything. So without a context, words become meaningless. Because we're the ones that would make them mean whatever we want them to mean. And so without a context, they're really meaningless. So when it comes to understanding what the Bible means, context is crucial. Absolutely crucial. You've heard us say that in this church for a number of years. Context, context, context. In fact, many of you are parroting that in your own phraseology when you're talking to one another or when you're answering questions in, the, in Sunday school classes and things like that. You're saying, well, context, we have to think about context. So there are two major types of context, right? There's historical context historical context, and we'll talk about, we, we actually talked about that last time as we talked about understanding the background and the details of what goes on in a, in a book or in a passage, right? All the background material, all the things that are happening when you're dealing with a passage of Scripture, what's going on in the, in the political environment, what's going on in the historical time, what, what time of the history of Israel, was it? And these kinds of things. So the historical context is one type of context. The second is literary context. Literary context. And what, that's what we want to look at tonight. Literary context relates to the particular form of a passage, and that particular form is known by the word genre. Genre. G-E-N-R-E. Genre as well as words, sentences, paragraphs, that all make up genre. So what is genre? What is genre? Right, every passage of Scripture, we need, to, we need to know what form it takes, what kind of genre it is in order for us to understand the rules that we need to play with or the rules we're playing in the playing field for that type of genre, for that type of game that we're in. We need to know what kind of written document it is so that we know what we're looking at. So what, kind, what is genre? Well, genre is a kind of 
literary or artistic work, right? It's the, it's the book itself and the author and how they wrote it and what they wrote. It's a style of expressing oneself in writing. When you write a letter to your friends, that's a genre of writing. When you ladies or men who love to cook sit down and write a recipe, that's another genre of writing. These are different genres. When you write a poem, that's a different genre of writing. When you were in school and had to write a fictional story or paper, that was a type of genre. When you had to write a historical paper, that's another type of genre. These are all kinds of genre. They're artistic work, style of expressing yourself in writing. So that's what genre is. Um, the Bible is literary genre, right? What does that mean? That just means that each book falls into a literary style, and those literary styles have characteristics which set them apart from the other books of the Bible, right? So the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? The, the Old Testament has narrative, like story. A narrative would be basically like a storyline. Much of the Old Testament is narrative history. Narrative history. You have law in the Old Testament. The entire book of Leviticus is law. Some of Deuteronomy is law. You have poetry in the Old Testament. The book of Psalms is poetry. Ecclesiastes would be a poetic book. You have prophecy, of course, in the Old Testament. How many books of prophecy do we have in the Old Testament? Anybody tell me? All of them. <laughs> all of them. <laughs> huh? Well, they all point to Jesus Christ, but there's, technically speaking, 17 books of prophecy, right? The major and minor prophets of the Old Testament. Five major prophets, 12 minor prophets. God knows how to do math, right? So, and then you have wisdom literature in the Old Testament, Proverbs um, and uh, some of the others that, that Solomon would have written in some of the other books. You'd have some wisdom literature in those, in those books as well. And then, of course, the New Testament, you have the Gospels, which would be uh, narrative in, 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 uh, in ways, um, although not, a, not necessarily a chronological narrative, per se. In other words, they skip time in there because the authors have an intent behind what they're writing and why they're writing what they're writing. And then you have the letters or the epistles. Paul wrote how many books? of the New Testament? 13. 13. And then you have prophecy, right? You have revelation. That's prophecy. So these are all genre. These are all, and you wouldn't, you wouldn't use the same rules in some ways. You wouldn't look at poetry the same way as you would look at a narrative passage. You wouldn't look at prophecy the same way you would as poetry. There are certain things that are said in prophecy maybe using the same words that they use in poetry, and yet they mean totally different things. Why? Because prophecy has its set of rules for 
playing with prophecy, and poetry has its set of rules for playing with poetry. So genre, uh, genre is important for us to understand when we do that. Now, within genre, there are also subgenres. Subgenres. In other words, there are smaller units of genre within the larger. Right? For example, there's an example, right, within the Gospel of Matthew at large, you have some subgenres that go on. You have the Sermon on the Mount, which is the longest sermon we have recorded, at least in the scriptures from Jesus, which is Matthew 5 through 7. That would be a subgenre within the larger genre of Matthew. And then within the Sermon on the Mount, you have even sub-sub-genres within that, right? The Lord's Prayer would be that. You have teachings, the Beatitudes would be that. Even though the whole genre of the Sermon on the Mount is talking about kingdom living, what it means to live in the kingdom of God, be a kingdom citizen, how that works itself out in life, you have these sub-genres that, that teach you different things to do in light of that, how to pray. Right, out of your attitude, what your attitude is supposed to be like in the kingdom of heaven. So you have context is in all of that, and genre is is how you you're going to help understand that context. Now, some of you might think this uh, this is um, not so important, but. I cannot emphasize it enough that that it is absolutely important because the Bible is not all the same in every book that's written, right? So you have to think like that. You have to realize that. You cannot just pick up the Bible and read Revelation for understanding in Revelation like you would read a gospel or like you would read an Old Testament narrative passage, right? If you do, you're going to come away with the wrong meaning. This is why people go off the deep end when it comes to prophecy. One of the reasons. Right? One of the reasons why they go off the deep end in creation when we talk about day and God created in six literal days. Right? We believe that. Well, people go off the rails because they think that was just mythology. That's just that's just speaking in terms that are mythological, and day doesn't necessarily mean 24 hours. Day can mean a long period of time. Christians have bought off on that nonsense, and now you have you have evolutionary creationism, which is a liberal theology based upon a misunderstanding of the context. It's all born out of that. So we do it every day when we understand genres. We do this all the time. Each day we interact with numerous different kinds of ways of communicating. We do that and we don't even think about it. We're not thinking, oh, that's, that's this kind of genre, that's this kind of genre, right? We, we, we listen to the news, that's political genre. Right? We, we look up a phone number, that's a type of literature. Right? We order from a menu. That's a different type of literature. Right? We do something, all these kinds of things like that, and, and we just don't think we're interacting with that, but we use different rules in a split second to understand those different things without even thinking about it. So this is 
This is part of our life. It's part of what we do. It's part of who we are. So what is the surrounding context and its importance? When we think of literary genre, we need to be looking at the surrounding context and its importance to the whole. So you need to look at your text, whatever it is you're reading. Right, you have that diagram in your in your uh, syllabus there. There's that diagram. So you have your text. That's the central part of it, right? Something you're looking at. And we're gonna we're gonna do a few exercises here in just a second. But I want to get this in our minds, right? You have your text right there whatever that might be, and then you have the immediate context would be whatever those verses are surrounding that, forwards and back, front and before and after. And then you might have then the larger context, which would be the paragraphs that surround that or the chapters that surround that, depending on the largeness of the book you're in. And then, of course, you have the entire book, which is a larger context. And then, of course, you have the Bible Outside of that, the entire scope of Scripture. And so if you are reading a verse, and you go, what does that mean? You need to read the verses before, the verses after, and then you need to go even wider than that, and even wider than that, because you don't want to come away with an understanding of that verse in your own mind that might contradict something that the Bible says somewhere else. There's a principle in Scripture, in Bible study, called the perspicuity of Scripture. Right? Scripture does not contradict itself. It does not contradict itself. It will never do that. So, what are the dangers in avoiding a careful study of the surrounding context? Uh, let's just go for a moment to Revelation. Let's go to prophecy first. And go to one of the most abused verses in the entire Bible. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Revelation 3, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and with me. For all of us who know Jesus Christ as our Savior, did the person who shared the gospel with you share that verse as an evangelistic verse? Has anybody heard it as an evangelistic verse? Have you ever used it yourself as an evangelistic verse? Be honest. Be honest. There's Jesus standing at the door of your heart. Eh? Hey, let me in. I want to come in. Right? I need to come in. That sounds really good. Sounds good. Man, that'll preach. That'll preach. That'll preach in a shallow church. There'll be people flocking to the aisle, man. They want to come down front, have Jesus come in. But the context has nothing to do with that. The context is a promise from our risen Lord to a church of Christians who have become lukewarm. 
And so rather than being a verse about salvation, right, a verse where God's desiring to save people and saying, I'm just waiting for you. If you just come to me, if you just open the door, just unlock it, I'll come in. No, this is a promise of Jesus to a disobedient group of believers, right, that are weak in their following of Jesus Christ, and he wants to renew fellowship with them if they just repent and obey. Right? We know this, don't we? How do you know that? Well, look at verse 14. Immediate context. The angel of the Lord to the church in Laodicea. Oh, that changes something. So this is to a church. And in the larger context, if you go back all the way to chapter 2 and verse 1, this has been the pattern for some time. The church, the angel to the church in Ephesus. Verse 8 of chapter 2, the angel to the church in Smyrna. Verse 12 of chapter 2, the angel to the church at Pergamum. Verse 18 of chapter 2, and the angel to the church in Thyatira. And chapter 3, verse 1, the angel to the church in Sardis. And here we are in verse 7, the angel to the church in Philadelphia. And here in verse 14, the angel to the church in Laodicea. So this is this is a long list of churches that the angel is making these announcements to. Different things, showing different realities about the church at the time. Right? And so this is not about salvation, although it sounds good. This is about the angel, the God himself, because the angel is writing to the church, dispatched by a risen Lord, right? The amen, the faithful and true witness, verse 14, the beginning of, of the creation of God says this. So who's speaking? Jesus, right? This is the risen Lord speaking, the beginning of creation, God himself saying, I know your deeds, that you're neither hot nor cold. I would that you were hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth because I say, because you say, I'm rich, you become wealthy and have no need of anything. You have no need, uh, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable, poor, blind and naked. In other words, you're blind to your own sin. You think you're okay. That I advise you to buy from me gold refined with fire, that you might be rich, white garments, clothe yourself. This is a whole verse about repentance. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So this is a church of people who have a relationship with Jesus Christ who are not walking with him. He loves them and he loves to he needs to reprove them, discipline them. They need to repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. I'm here. I want to have you come to me in repentance. So it's you, anytime you hear somebody say in evangelistic sense, that's a word for evangelism, you go, oh, wait a minute. That's not about evangelism at all. It's not about evangelism at all. It's a greater content. And then it's in the book of Revelation, which is all about Jesus Christ, the revelation of Jesus Christ coming back as the judge, to judge the entire earth and the whole tribulation period that goes on from chapter 4 or chapter 6 through chapter 19 in the New heaven and new earth at the end. So the greater context of all of that. 
So if you want to preach salvation to somebody, certainly you can do that. But don't preach it from Revelation 3.20. So, one of the dangers in avoiding careful study, one is you can make the Bible say anything you want and you ignore the surrounding context. Right? Matthew, I mean, Revelation 3.20 is one example. Let's just go to another one that's abused all the time. Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. Verse 20. Two or three have gathered together in my name. There I am in their midst. It's a great prayer meeting. Church service. Right? You ever heard somebody say that? Listen, we can. That's, that's, that means people need to gather together for prayer time. Anybody ever said that? You ever heard that? Yeah, yeah. I've always scratched my head when I've heard that because I go, well, wait a minute, what about if I'm by myself? Can I not talk to God? i got to call my three friends together? I'm going to get two or three friends so I, God will hear me? I mean, that's the key to unlocking the door? I thought he was my father. I thought I could say, Abba, Father, and go to God and just talk to him. So just that alone on a, on a similar, similar logical sense, it didn't seem to make sense. But we're talking about context, right? What is the context that that verse is in? Right, the restoring of a sinner. Right, verse 15, if your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. If he doesn't listen to you, take two or one or two more, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. By the way, let's not be confused at that verse either. Sometimes we think that in church discipline, somebody, those two or three that have to go, or the witness that has to go, has to have one who witnesses the first sin that, that was happening in verse 15. That's, that's not the reason for that. The reason for witnesses is to confirm whether there's repentance or unrepentance. You go as a witness to confirm whether there's repentance or unrepentance because if there's not unrepentance, what happens? If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen even to the church, then let him be treated as a Gentile or a tax gatherer. In other words, a so-called believer, someone who claims to know Jesus but isn't acting like one, and then he says, verse 18, Truly I say to you, whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. In other words, what you do, what I've commanded you to do, you walk through the process, you reprove a brother, he doesn't repent, you tell, you go with someone else, you reprove a brother, they don't repent, you tell it to the church, the church goes, reaches out, tells it to them, they don't repent, you put them out of the fellowship so that they will learn to not sin like that. It's a chastening of God upon them. It's not a hatred thing. What happens today in our church life, and I'm kind of getting out of the idea of context and going more into theological teaching, but what happens today is somebody, that happens to somebody in a church, a church like ours that tries to be theologically sound and teach the Word of God and 
exercise the word of God. They go down the street to the next church, and the church goes, hey, come on in. We love you. Welcome. And you go, wait a minute. Where's the, where's the sense of disfellowship? Where's the sense of loss of the family, the love, relationship, all that, that you gain from being part of the body of Christ? Where is that? Or you hear some, some teacher say, some elder in the church or pastor in the church says, we don't do that because it just doesn't work. It doesn't work. I've heard that. It doesn't matter if it works. What works is the fact that whether you're faithful to God or not, God says do this. That's what works. <clears throat> so, verse 19 Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. Again, this is in the context of bringing this issue where where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst. God says, God's not saying, listen, if, if it's only two or three that are there, then that's good. Don't make it four. Don't make it eight. He's saying, listen, what you do in obedience to me, I'm in agreement with that. I'm in agreement with that. So it's not a prayer meeting. Context totally destroys it in that reality. <clears throat> and then look what Peter says right after. And Peter comes and says to him, Lord, okay, how often should a brother sin against me and I forgive him? So Peter got the message. Peter understood what it was about. Peter didn't come and say, okay, Lord, so if I need to pray, which two guys should I get? Peter didn't ask that. Peter was there. He heard the Lord say this. Peter understood the context of what Jesus was talking about. He said, okay, Lord, so if somebody sins against me, how often do I need to forgive him? And of course, we know the context of that, right? Jesus says, I don't say to you up to seven times, but 70 times said. In other words, you just continue to forgive. You have an attitude of forgiveness. Go over to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Second Timothy chapter 2. Verse 22 says, Now flee from youthful lusts. What is he talking about? Just in that one phrase. Any ideas? Just throw it out there. Things you did when you were younger. Huh? Sins that you did when you were younger. Sins you do when you're younger. Anybody else? Useful lusts. Sexual sin. So that would be kind of like what Joe's saying, sins of your youth, things that you used to do with your youth. What's the context? What's the context of this? <clears throat> Notice what he says in this verse. Now, flee from youthful lusts, and pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. But, there's a contrast, right? Here's what you are to do, but 
refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. What is the what is a difficulty of being a young person? You know it all and you want to argue it all. Right? I mean, all of us who are here in this room who are older are the ones that just said that. Because we know what we were like. And if we have kids, we know what they're like. Right? If their parents would just get on board, things would be great. That's what our kids are like. Right? I remember my one of my sons and his cousin said one time when they were in their mid-20s, they're not in their 20s anymore, he said, man, they were talking on the phone, he said, man, can you believe it? One day I just woke up, my head came off the pillow, and I said, man, everything my dad said was right. <laughs> he goes, yeah, I know, isn't that crazy? <laughs> right, that, that's, this is what he's talking about. Timothy is a young man. Timothy is about ready to take the helm as a leader in the church, right? And he's like, listen, if, if verse 21, if a man cleanses himself from these things, what things? These things that are wicked, right? Everything in verse 19, right? The firm foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. Right? So you want to be a vessel of honor. Therefore, if a man cleanses himself, verse 21, from these things, and that these things, again, goes all the way back to verse 16, really. Avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. And he gives an example of two guys whose names are in the Bible now for all posterity, for us to read. These are guys who couldn't handle their tongue. They just argued about everything. Hymenaeus and Philetus. They've gone astray from the truth. In what way? They say the resurrection's already taken place. And so they've set, upset the faith of some. But nevertheless, God knows who are his, and, and, and everyone who names the name of the Lord abstains from wickedness. They, they don't know the Lord. They're, they're wicked men. So certainly, even though they name the Lord, they're, they're wicked because they're not living like it. And he says, so if a man cleanses himself from these things, he'll be a vessel of honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And I have heard people say about that verse, that's a verse about sexual purity over and over and over again. Because we think of lust that way the only way we think of it, oftentimes. And it's true. It's used that way a lot in Scripture. The epithumia is the original word. It means strong desire. We have a strong desire for a lot of stuff. And in our youth, obviously, sexual lust is, is certainly can be a problem, but it's no less of a problem, I don't think, for older people, right? Lust is lust. So refuse, he says, verse 23, foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and that they may come to their senses 
and escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So, quarrelsomeness for the sake of wrangling over words is just simply acting like the devil. Bottom line. Flee that, he said. Timothy, stay away from that. You're going to have a lot of theological challenges. Flee the youthful lust of quarrel. See how context changes it? Context brings makes it clear. Now there's a lot of nuance in there from the study of the words and the syntax of the sentences and all that kind of stuff that we're not even talking about yet, but just the context helps us understand what's going on in the text. So youthful lust is not sexual sin. It means that Timothy doesn't need to be getting into arguments to defend the gospel. That's what the youth love to do, just argue a point. They fight about everything. So we want to be careful, right? Because we don't want to make the Bible say what it doesn't say, right? We we can't ignore the surrounding context. We have to remember what it says. Say. Secondly, when we ignore the context, we can easily become a topical verse lister. Right? A proof that should say texter, not tester. A typo. Right? We distort the Bible's meaning by missing the literary context. Well, that's the second danger for avoiding the surrounding context. We just become somebody who has a list of verses for all of our pet little things that we have, and anytime somebody brings up something, we, we say, oh, that's, how, many, how many have misused Philippians 4.13? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nobody wants to answer. Yeah, we, 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 we have in the past, haven't we? I don't think any of us ever jumped off a cliff thinking, hey, I can do all things. Here I go. God's not going to suspend gravity for you in your foolishness. You're going to find out what gravity's like when you come to the ground. You, that's not what he's saying there. That doesn't mean you can do everything in the world, anything universally. Right? The context of Philippians clearly indicates that. So, what is the more reliable process for ministering the Word? You have a, a diagram in your, in your book there, right? Let's just, for example, you take a passage like John 10, you can take any passage, you have a thought, right? You have this, maybe a thought that's one, you have a second thought. We've, we've looked at some of these verses, this is just kind of the flow. The author gives a thought, gives a thought, gives a thought, And then from those, you derive the authorial meaning, right? You're going to get flavors and nuances of the meaning as you go on and you dig deeper into the the, uh, grammar of it, but you can get an overall sense of what it looks like, right? You can look at the thought of a text, the thought of a text, the thought of a text, just like we did in Revelation and Matthew and... 2 Timothy, and you can come away with a sense of authorial meaning that will then you can take that principle and begin to now put it into practice in your life. It'll be a whole lot 
a whole lot better off with just that in your understanding of Scripture than, sadly, most of evangelical church. Because most people don't do that. Most people just have a bunch of verses that they've listed that, that have been their pet verses, they've memorized or whatever, but totally out of the context of where they were taken. And maybe they understand a little bit of something or a, a piece here and a piece there, but oftentimes it's not in the context for what it says. Everybody understand so far? Questions? Any other examples that you might think of in your own mind? Doug? When you use the verse where it says, what is down on earth is down in heaven, the charismatic use that a lot. Sure. Binding Satan. Yeah. Yeah. Thinking we have the power somehow to bind Satan from Matthew 18, verse 20. Debbie? One thing, um, it's not necessarily that your ideas Right. Sometimes we have a correct biblical thought, but we're using a wrong passage to bring that biblical thought out. Right? Uh, wrong or, or right, right thought, wrong Bible verse for it. Right. In other words, Jesus wants you to 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 believe upon Him. Right. He stands and wants you to believe upon Him. Yes. True. Revelation three twenty doesn't teach that. Yeah. Somebody else had their hand up. Jeremiah 29.11. Tell us what it says, Pete. Um, <laughs> turn to it. You can turn and read. No, no, no. Uh, I need to stop. For I know the plans that I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and future. Yeah, so what is the context of that? What to, well, let's talk, let's talk about it for a second. What type of genre of literature is Jeremiah? One of the major prophets, right? The major prophets simply because it's a longer book than the minor prophets. That's the reason. Just letting you know. So it's a major prophet. So it's prophecy. So that means it's speaking about something to come, at least from the perspective of the author when he's writing it. So in Jeremiah 29, 11, he's speaking to who, Pete? Israel. Israel. So it's not a verse for us personally. There may be principles there about God's care for his people, God's love for his people, some universal principles <laughs> that we can think about and, and actually go to other places in the Bible that speak directly to those kinds of things that we can get implications for our life and begin to apply that. But Jeremiah 29, 11, God is speaking to his people, Israel. It's not he's speaking to you personally. It's not, hey, God, I know you got a plan. There was a Bible study several years ago that came out very popular. You guys remember what it was? The prayer of Jabez. The prayer of Jabez. Only about two verses in the entire scriptures. Nothing else about Jabez ever. But a whole Bible study came out about that. Hey, listen, you just need to pray that God would expand your boundaries and all this kind of stuff. You pray that, pray the prayer of Jabez, and and God's going to bless your life. And I always thought about, wow, really? That's how it works? So what about two guys praying the prayer of Jabez, and the boundaries are conflicting with one another? 
Who gets it? Whose boundary gets expanded and who's done? And now one guy's prayer, Jabez, is failing, but the other guy's is succeeding. I mean, just that alone. I mean, if you just think about that kind of stuff like that, and you go, that's not how God works. Even if you don't understand the whole book, you can go, hmm, that just doesn't sound right. It just doesn't, it just doesn't fit in with my understanding of who God is and how God works. And then go to Scripture and you can quickly find out, like we just did in Jeremiah 29, 11, that God is talking to Israel, not to you personally. It's a great example. Somebody else have their hand up. I was just going to say, with Doug said, that that was Matthew 20, but also Matthew 15, verse 19, that the entire world has to say, so hopefully off of that earth. Right. Right. You are the rock, and on you, oh, you I will build my church. Yeah. Keys to heaven. <laughs> right. Well, certainly because Peter, Peter talks about it in First Peter. Why would they be baptizing for the dead? So, um, so that's why they. That's where oh, they go. Oh, I know. They take that one verse. Sure. 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 Every false religion does that. Every false religion does. That. Any other? Yeah. Uh, I often think uh, the you do not have you do not ask what you don't continue with. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Right. So if you ask anything in my name. because they have charlatans teaching that and people funneling money to them and they go see I've done I've done everything and 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 God blesses you so a seed right, that's what they say so false teachers are all over the place in your in your book on the next page I think you have a, an example of of kind of the wrong way to do it it's it's the topical process of ministering a passage it's 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 how you get outside the context. So you just take a thought from one passage, maybe a thought from another passage, a thought from a third passage, and then you come up with whatever that meaning might be, and you may not understand those passages in the context at all. And so you have to be careful of that, because just because they're using similar words doesn't mean they mean the same thing. So... Like I said, genre plays a huge role in how we understand what the author is saying. So how can we as Bible interpreters identify the surrounding literary context? How do we identify it? Well, one, 
One, we have to thoughtfully read the entire book of the Bible in order to get what the author is arguing. So you're reading a passage. Let's say you're reading in Matthew. How many chapters in Matthew? Josiah. Good job. You know there's 28 chapters. You go, that's a long thing to read. Well, guess what? Yes, it is going to be long, but you know what? You're going to understand the author's intent and drive for the whole context, the larger context, if you read the whole book. You read the whole book. And the more you read it, the better you're going to understand it. When I was in seminary, I think I told you this last time, when I was in seminary, when we had to learn to study a, a portion of Scripture, the seminary prof said, before you ever do anything with it, you need to read that text 30 to 40 times. 30 to 40 times. In different translations. Well, by the time you read something 30 or 40 times, if you're not absolutely brain dead from the start, just reading it 30 or 40 times, you're going you're gonna to understand something. You're going to start to notice flow and patterns and subject matter and those kinds of things. You're going to understand it. Now, you can break it down. Right? You can break a larger book down into... Matthew has 28, so you can break it down into seven chapters, seven chapters, seven chapters, seven chapters. Do it that way. If you're in this passage and it's these seven chapters, read, read three or four chapters before and three or four chapters after. You're going to get an understanding. Obviously, a smaller book like Ephesians or Galatians or Philippians are smaller. You can read those. There's only 104 verses in Philippians. That's it. 104 verses. You can read that faster than you can read Psalm 119. <laughs> right? Psalm 118, 176 verses. So it doesn't take that long, and the more you read, the faster you're going to get reading and be more comfortable with what you are reading. So read the entire book thoroughly to get what they're work, uh, arguing, and then work to divide it up into the sections and paragraphs. Don't Try not to pay attention to the to the bold paragraph divisions that you have in your Bible. Try not to pay attention to those. I know it's hard because obviously linguists have done this, translators have done this, and they've tried to do that for us, and it's helpful most of the time. But there are places where it's not a really good division. And you'll be reading through this and go, you know, I, I just, man, that, that seems to fit more with that section than it does with this section. That's okay. That's okay. Because the further you go studying that, you'll you'll uncover that maybe maybe your thought on that wasn't right. Maybe it does fit over here. So that's okay to think like that. But but try to read and then divide it up. Get a pencil, get a paper, write down those things. Um, so read the whole letter or book to understand its parts, right? And it often helps uh, to to summarize each section or paragraph, right? Write out for yourself, word for word, uh, just a brief synopsis, right? When you finished a paragraph or finished an entire chapter or finished an entire book, write out a synopsis, a summary that, that you believe they're arguing. What, what's the argument of this chapter? What's the argument of these chapters, right? And so in the end, you can summarize all that. This is the argument of the book. This is what he's arguing for, 
right? Some authors give you exactly why they're writing it, right? Right? We know why the Gospel of John was written. We know why he wrote it. Anybody tell me? What's that? Right. Chapter 20. What was the verse? 31. 31. What's it say? There you go. I wrote this so that. Ding, 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 ding. Purpose. Authorial statement. That means everything in the Gospel of John that's written in the Gospel of John points to that points at that, is driving at that. So every little thing you read, every vignette, every window you're looking at in the life of Jesus Christ that John is presenting points at that. I put this here so you might believe he's the Christ. Some authors do that wonderfully. (laughs) They give us that. It's great. Right? Exactly. Right? Luke says that to Theophilus, right? I wrote this so that you might have certainty about the things you've known about Jesus. Same thing. John waits till the end to say that. Luke puts it at the beginning. So these, all these kind of things help, and everything in there derives at those arguments. Number three, take the main idea of each section and develop an overall outline of its argument. Right, this is going to provide you with a usable flow of thought. The flow of thought of the author. Whatever section you're working in, whatever portion of Scripture you're thinking through, try to write out a flow of thought. And you'll develop then an outline of its argument. And and you're going to start to understand Scripture not just by verses. You're going to start understanding Scripture in larger pictures, larger portions. And then you're going to say, oh, wait a minute. That book that I was just looking at is saying some of the same stuff that this book's talking about. And so these theological concepts and these things you're reading about are going to start clicking. You're going to go, when someone says, hey, where do I go to find this? You can go, well, you can go here, you can go here, you can go here, because it's in all those books. Which just tells you something about God, doesn't it? The scriptures were written over 1,400 years with 40 different authors, and yet these 40 different authors are saying the same thing. He just knows we're forgetful. He knows Brian's forgetful. Yeah, very much so. That's right. God only gave us one book, thankfully, not a library of Congress. Right? He gave us 66 small little letters, 32,000 verses. It's not very many, and yet we can't exhaust our understanding of it. So, all right, so let's break it down a little farther. How do we do a word study? How do we do a word study? Right? First, six common mistakes that we make. One is we study English words only. 
Ah, scary. That means I don't know the other languages. It's okay. It's okay. There are tools. Remember the electronic tools that are out there? They can help you. You don't have to know the language. You don't even have to necessarily read the language by anything. You don't even have to know the alphabet. You just can scroll over words and it'll go, oh, that's this word. Those kinds of things. So sometimes we just study the English only. And when we study the English only, we get ourselves into some difficulties because not every English dictionary is the same. Right? We have modern dictionaries that speak of words in our modern time. And we have dictionaries from other times that don't use those words anymore. And, and so the English language becomes this fluid, moving thing. And language is not always the same today as it was in years past. And so you have to be careful of studying English words only because you can find yourself pigeonholing yourself to certain meanings which aren't necessarily the meaning of the original author. Remember, we, we go back to historical context and knowing the time and, and the people and what was going on then. Well, we want to understand what the word meant to them, what it meant to them when the author wrote it, not what we think it means to us today. Because if we know what it meant to them, now we can take that information and transfer it up over to our time and go, okay, that's what he's talking about. Yep, yep. So I think there's another problem, and that is that, you know, I've studied a number of languages, and the problem is that, you know, words are not... And a word in English is not exactly the same thing as a word in Greek or Hebrew. And so we can, that's why translation, you have different translations. Yeah, it's not a transliteration of the word in Greek or Hebrew. Sometimes it is. But no, what I'm saying is the meaning of a Greek word is not, how do I say this? It's like there are some words, like you can say chair, and you can say the word chair in English, and there's probably a word in Greek that means chair. But if you say something like grace, you know, in English, you know, or or Hesed or one of those words. There's no, not necessarily one English word that's going to encompass all of what Hesed means. Well, there never is, because even in English, the English word doesn't encompass all that it means, right? right? If I say the word king, that has a lot of different meanings, depending on the context in which I use it and the, and the way I use it, right? Uh, if I say the word heart, I can, I can talk about a lot of different things. Right? I can talk about the beating organ in my chest. I can talk about the central uh, subject matter of an issue, the heart of the issue. I, there's a whole kinds of different ways to use it. it and and in, in the original language, it would be the same thing, right? The Greek word for heart is cardia, right? We have cardiac, which is heart, which means the pumping organ. And yet at the same time, heart in the Greek language didn't necessarily mean the pumping organ. Only, right. It's difficult if we don't know the original language, right? It can be more difficult in understanding what a word might mean in only using English. That's why we are grateful to live in the time we live in because we have tools. We have tools. Very helpful to take a Greek class or, or try to learn some of that. Even in our old age, it's very helpful, but we have tools. We have tools that can do that and help us with that, right? So you don't want to just stay with the English meaning 
only. That, that can be problematic. Two, uh, etymological root mistakes. What do we mean by that? Etymology is how a word is made up, right? Finding the real meaning in the root of the word, right? Etym- etymological is just the roots of words, and words are built off of roots. We learn that in grammar. Well, if we just study the root and say, oh, since that's the root of the word, that mean that must mean what it is overall, that can be troublesome for us. Because in English, um, if I say uh, butterfly, I use that word butterfly, am I talking about a fly that landed on butter? Right? Etymology would say you have two words. You have butter and you have fly. Well, if I take just the etymological reality of those two words, I can come up with all kinds of different things, and yet I'm talking about a butterfly. And we all have the picture in our mind what a butterfly is, because we learn by pictures and those kinds of things. Right? So just because we know the root meaning of a word does not mean we know the meaning. Debbie. Yeah, another big thing that I remember becoming aware of is um, why it may be interesting to look at how a word developed, like classical Greek. Mm-hmm. Um, words change in meaning over time. And while it may be interesting, that has nothing to do, I mean, if you think of Shakespeare, in writing and modern English or even, you know, King James. Mm-hmm. Conversation today doesn't mean what it meant in, in the past King James. Right, language is fluid. Language is fluid, which means etymology doesn't necessarily give us meaning as we are, even in the original language. Like Debbie was saying, the classical Greek is different, right? So what determines meaning? Context, right? Context determines how a word is being used, not etymology. Context. I gave the example of the word king, or uh, um, oh, what's that? Trunk. Trunk, yeah. Or turkey, right? Turkey's a bird, or three strikes in a game, right? You can have a turkey in bowling, three strikes in a row. So depending on the context that it's used, it can mean different things. Somebody else have an example or something? Were you going to say something, Doug? No? Okay. We were mind-melding. The word slave. Slave? Slave. You know, bond servant, slave, because of slavery and what it meant. Right. The Bible didn't come here with the word slave. Right. It's an English translation. It would be what the offense would be. Number three, overloaded word meaning. What do we mean by overloaded word meaning? It's, it's that we put a meaning of a word now on a word then. Right? So we're transferring meaning from today back into the ancient time. And we're overloading that word with meaning in history with meaning from our modern day. 
that becomes a major problem, right? We overload the meaning with what we might know it to mean today, and we 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 kind of do reverse eisegesis. We import, we put into the history our modern day understanding rather than try to understand what it meant back in the time of the Bible. Right? I'll give you an example. Go to Romans chapter 1. This one is used often. Debbie's going to love this. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. The original language word is dunamis. Dunamis. Right? You will hear people say, that's the basis for our word, dynamite. Right? God, gospel is the explosive power of God unto salvation. And all that sounds good. The preacher's really good, but that's not what it means. That's what we're talking about. We're transferring today's meaning all the way back. Because all that's dunamis' meaning is the dynamic, the ability, the way that God works. It has nothing to do with dynamite. They didn't have dynamite back then. They didn't have explosives back then. They didn't know what TNT was. So it can't mean that. Paul wasn't saying, oh, yeah, the gospel is the... Yeah, yeah, remember when Andrew blew up things? Yeah, it was like when we were kids, you know, we'd light all these things. No, not talking about that. He's just saying this is God's way. This is the dynamic of God for salvation. What? The gospel. It's God's way. Power of God. So that's an example of overloading word meaning. Number four. Majority use mistake. Majority use mistake. What is majority use mistake? Well, just because a word is used the same way many times in the Bible does not mean that it means that all the time. Right? Context determines meaning. One of the words that this is a, this principle is abused with is the word world. That word is abused. Just because the word world is used many times in the same way doesn't mean the word world means that way all the time. There's a whole lot of theological doctrines about the universal reality of God saving everybody because of that word. As if world means universal. Debbie. Debbie. Right, right. So context determines meaning, not frequency of usage. Okay, even the word all, even the word. Right, 
Even the word all in Scripture doesn't necessarily mean universally everything. Just because we know it means that in sometimes some ways, it's, it's usually categorically limited in Scripture, the word all. So the context will determine that. Number five, comprehensive word study mistake. In other words, just because we study one word doesn't mean that we've studied every word or concept that that word covers. Again, we're talking about a scope of meaning, right? There's a, there's a scope of meaning in the Scriptures when it comes to a word. In other words, the word ekklesia, what do we normally, that's a Greek word that normally means what? The church, right? We say the church, but it doesn't necessarily mean because it means church, normally that means that all the time, right? So we have to, we have to be careful with that. You have to be careful with that. And then lastly, selective favoritism. Selective favoritism. That means that very often in our study, we can tend to use only those meanings that we like. that are our favorites. The ones we typically go to. And so we implant those upon every time we see that word, we go, oh yeah, that's what it means. Easy to do. Easy to do. I've done it. I've done it. Easy to do. Remember, context determines meaning. So, just studying the English words can be dangerous. Studying the roots of the words just can be dangerous. Overloading the word meaning can be dangerous. Just because it's used a lot and means one thing a lot doesn't mean it means that all the time. So a majority use can be a mistake. Comprehensive word study mistakes and selective favoritism are all mistakes. So how do we determine the meaning of a word then? We've kind of been hinting at some of these things as we've been going along and talking about this. How do we determine the meaning? Find the semantic range. That's what we're talking about. Every word has a semantic range of meaning. In other words, it, it means a, a, it can mean different things over time. You look in a dictionary under a word, it just doesn't give you one word that it means, right? It gives you a semantic range of meanings. You'll have definition A, definition B, definition C, and definition E sometimes. Sean? It seems to me you skipped the section of B. How do you choose the right words to study? And you went straight to C. What did I do? Which one did I skip? How do you choose the right words to study? And then the selection procedure. I did. I did. Do you, do you just have numbers? Yes. All right, I'll give, I'll give you the selection procedure, okay? It's, I don't have a slide for it, so I'll just give it to you. Okay? The selection procedure is this. Identify keywords on which the meaning of a passage hangs. Identify keywords on which the meaning of the passage hangs. Every, and I'll just tell you this, meaning is in the verbs. Meaning is in the verbs. Action word.
identify key words on which the meaning of the passage hangs. Right? So, just for example, the verse we were in, Romans chapter 1, verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Right? So shame would be a key word, right? For it is the power, right? It, the gospel is, that's a, is is a connecting verb, so there's no real action verb there. It's a transitive verb that's there. The gospel is power for everyone who believes. So believe is a, is a key word to key on. What is belief? And then to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So there's a couple words there that you might key in on, right? Key words in which the meaning of that verse hangs. Two, number two, everybody got that? Or are you still writing? You need me to repeat it again. Okay, everybody got it? Number two, identify all the repeated words. Identify the repeated words. A good example is that in our study of Ephesians chapter 1, right? I think Russ even made a comment about this at our Sunday school class, adult Sunday school class. In Ephesians chapter 1, God or a, a pronoun for God or something in Ephesians chapter 1 is, is mentioned upwards of 50 times. That's a repeated word or a repeated concept about God that, that's important. List those. So it's important. So identify all that. Number three, identify all the figures of speech. The phrases that, that will be parts of the figures of speech that, they might, that you might notice in a passage. So identify key words, identify repeated words, and identify figures of speech. And then number four, Identify the unclear or difficult words, things that you're just puzzled about. And there may be a lot of those, especially early on in our Bible study. Man, that puzzles me. That word puzzles me. That's good. Because now you're going to dig in and find out what those mean. And then you won't be puzzled next time, at least in that text. You might find that word in another text and you have an idea of what it could mean. But now you want to find out the word meaning. So how do you determine the word meaning? Find out the semantic range. Right? We're up to where we were. Right? The semantic range. The semantic range is just all of the different ways an original word for English, an original word is translated. There's different ways that the translators have translated an original word for our English text. Okay? So this is all the different ways, the, the semantic range in which it is being used. So make a list of all those possible meanings of the word. Make a list of all the possible. For English, just use a good English dictionary. 
and look and say, okay, that word. Because in English, we have, we have a sense of meaning of words, but oftentimes we may not know exactly what that, the whole semantic range of that, and we want to look at that, even in English. So get a good English dictionary. Hebrew or Greek or Aramaic, which is the language of the original language of the Bible, use a good Bible concordance. A good Bible concordance will give you the original language word, tell you what it means, and it will give you a range of meaning. While you're doing that, you can compare and contrast the difference between how your English Bible has translated the word with the original meaning. So if you have a concordance and you look up in the English dictionary what that means and then you look in a concordance what that original word might mean, you'll go, oh, okay, and you can compare those and go, I wonder, and then you can start asking the question, why would the translators use that word here? Why would they translate it with that English meaning here? It gives you a sense of understanding because what they're trying to do is bring all of those things we don't understand about the original language into the translation for us. That's why it's not a word-for-word translation of the Bible. That's why we have more words sometimes in English than we'll have in a Greek language or the Hebrew language because their words packed into them meaning that, that our words don't, don't pack into it punctuation and things like that we have in our sentences in our language, whereas in Hebrew and Greek, punctuation, verb endings and, and prefixes and suffixes and things like that all added to the meaning of a word and changed the meaning of a word. Well, all that will come out as you look at a good concordance. Right? And also, you can be careful to identify areas where there's agreement in those. When you're looking at it, right? But always give preference to the original meaning, the way it was used, especially if the definitions don't agree. You don't want to just pull the most rare meaning out. You want to make sure you lean towards the preference towards the original meaning and how it was used. So make a list of all those possible meanings. Number two, use a good exhaustive Bible concordance. Like I said, it has a Hebrew-Greek numbering system. You'll notice sometimes, maybe I don't know what kind of Bibles you have, but like the Bible I have up here will give words and it has numbers next to it. These numbers next to it are, are numbers that are keyed towards the Strong's Bible concordance. Right, those numbers, so I can go in, in the back of my Bible and look at the concordance and just look up the number, and it's in dark numbering, and that gives me the original word and the definition of the word. Some Bibles have a concordance, some don't. You can buy a thick or go online. I mean, every good Bible program that's online, even the free ones, will have a concordance that's keyed to typically the Strong's numbers. Strong's is just the name of the book, so it'll be keyed to that. So those numbers will, will take you to that dictionary place so that you can understand the original meaning. Number three, always remember the context determines meaning, right? So be sure of how that word, note how that word, how it's used in the context in which it's listed. 
And we've been saying this over and over again, and we're going to say it over and over and over again. Not all Bible writers, and I'll just say for that matter, not all translators of the Bible use a word in the same way. The way Paul uses the word flesh in the original language is not necessarily the same way the Apostle John uses the word flesh. They're drawing different nuances of meaning for the context in which they're writing. And so you need to need to see that and need to understand that. All right, now you have a page in your... Uh, it's... It's the one that's got the Hebrew with Strong's Exhaustive Concordance of the Bible on it. That's an example for you to see how it works, right? The word jealous there, right? Exodus 20, verse 5, Lord, they, uh, I am a jealous God, it says, right? The key number is 7,067, right? Equated with, that's a, that's a nuance, right? Lord whose name is Jealous, uh, uh, Exodus 34, 14. And then, of course, in Numbers 5, 4, it's used again. And he be jealous of his wife. So it gives you, the exhaustive concordance uh, gives you uh, 7,065, because 7,065, 7,066, and 7,067 are all nuances, differences of meaning of that word. And so it gives you what that word is in the original language, it's pronounced kana. It gives you the primitive root and where you can find it, which is T-W-O-T is an acronym for the theological word book of the Old Testament. So that's just the name of a book and the number in that book. It's a verb, or it says a, a, a V there, which is a, an indicator in that book. Uh, and then it has how it's used, right? In the authorized version, that's what the AV stands for. It's used 10 times, they translated it jealous, the same word, nine times as envy, five times jealousy, four times envious, two times zealous, two times very, one times zeal. So it's used 33 times, and there's the different ways in which it's been translated. Well, context is going to tell you why, They've translated in different ways. And then, of course, it goes down after that, and it tells you the different ways the verb is used or the different declensions of it in the Hebrew language. PL is a is part of a, a Hebrew uh, verb. Hifael is a, a Hebrew verb. So those are just different pointings of the verb, and it tells you how it changes with those. So you... That's what a concordance would look like. So that's the information you get. So it covers semantic range, and it covers differences of meaning, and these kinds of things. Okay? So always make note of that word within the context in which it's listed, because context determines meaning. All right, let's try to... Finish this. So how do we determine what a word means in the immediate literary context? <coughs> Ask these questions. Is there a contrast? 
similar to some of the things we've already talked about. Is there a contrast? Is there a, a, media, a comparison in the immediate context that helps to define the word? So first, we have to understand what it means in the immediate context if we're going to understand the word meaning at large. And so immediate context has everything to do with the things that surround it, the paragraphs that precede it, the paragraphs that follow, wherever it is we are studying. And so that includes the contrasts and comparisons within the immediate context, those paragraphs that be before and the paragraphs after. Two, does the subject matter of the text help to determine the meaning of the word? Does the subject matter help determine the meaning of the word? Three, does the author's usage of the word in another text, something else they've written, that has a similar context, help to give the meaning in the context in which we're reading? So number one, is there contrast or comparison in the immediate context? Two, does the subject matter of the text help to determine the meaning? And three, does the author's usage of that word in another text that has similar context help us understand the meaning? And then number four, does the overall argument of the book give us any clues on how he's using the word? Right, just us knowing what the Gospel of John is all about helps us define some of the words that John uses like world and flesh, things like that. gives us greater understanding for how he's using it. And then number five, does the historical context shade or change the meaning at all? So we've kind of tried to approach this from a, 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 a big picture and we're honing it down, honing it down, honing it down. Right? Oh, historical context, large picture context, what's going on not only in the Bible, but what's going on in the book that we're reading, both surrounding the author's time that it was written and all those historical factors that go into it. And then we're breaking down in the 
book itself, reading the book, getting a flow of thought, and then breaking it down by paragraph into the smaller sections. We're comparing things and looking at definitions and and uh, not making determinations fully yet. We're just observing. We're just we're just trying to be like Sherlock Holmes, digging under the hood and saying, "What's here? What's here?" Uh, so that we can understand what's going on. Eight thirty. Any questions? Yeah, Diane. Which section? What? Under B, yeah. Um, I'm trying to find the because my B might be different. Yeah, my mine's going to have different page numbers though. It's right Oh, carefully note the areas of agreement, right? Of a word, right? A semantic range, because because sometimes you're going to have you're going to have a disagreement with definitions. You're going to be looking at, at maybe two different dictionaries or whatever, you're going to have different definitions of it. And and you're going to want to maybe because it seems to, to sound better with this or go better here. You so you want to always give preference to the original rather than, than the farther down nuanced one. That's what he's talking about. All right. Any other questions? Everybody ready to go to sleep? All right, we will save, we'll end there, and we'll save the next, uh, we'll save who controls the meaning, the author or the interpreter, until next time. Uh, And then we'll get into the 12... um, 12 principles for Bible interpretation, which are going to do some overlap, but um, I think they're important as a review for us. And you have you have them in there, so it's we're going to you know I'll list them as high as as items, but we'll you 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 have all the information, so there's not going to be a whole lot of writing you'll have to do. All right, and then after that one, we'll start to get into grammar. So if you want to drop the class. <laughs> You're in too far already. Right? Well, thanks for your attention. Thanks for tonight. I know it's a lot of just technical data information, but but this is important stuff. I mean, uh, you probably didn't think Bible study was that uh, involved. But if we're going to get it right, it needs to be that involved. We can't be lackadaisical about it. We, we just can't go, oh, yeah, well, I'll just take that because it feels good and it's easy. Right? We have to work hard at it. We have to work hard at it. Uh, 2,000 years of history have gone before us, and that's a big gap to bridge. But we can, um, and we have the tools to do it and the brain power. So uh, I got confidence.
make happen so that we don't tell people Jesus is standing at the door knocking and wants to just come in. All right?